Hello. I am a robot. You are listening to Strength in Depth. A 200% podcast. Hello everybody, and welcome to Strength in Depth, a 200% podcast. This is a history of non-league football, from the time when all football was non-league to the present day, when the top end of the non-league game is practically indistinguishable from the lower reaches of the football league. This is a love story, the story of a part of the game which is kept alive by the dedication of those who will not see it die. But it's also a story of corruption greed and exclusion, and of clubs that live hand-to-mouthy lives without such luxuries as fat television contracts and exorbitant ticket prices to fall back upon. On the 18th of February 2017, Lincoln City made a little piece of FA Cup history. By winning 1-0 against Burnley at Turf Moor in the fifth round of the competition, not only had they beaten top-flight opposition away from home, but they'd also become the first non-league club to reach the quarter-finals of the FA Cup since Queen's Park Rangers 103 years earlier, when football in this country looked very different indeed. It's been almost 120 years since a non-league club last won the FA Cup, and the likelihood of any club from below the Premier League winning it seems to be receding year on year, even though it's already been 40 years since this last happened. But as the FA Cup fades from relevance for those who support the biggest clubs, it remains central to the non-league calendar every year. This is a story of non-league football clubs in the FA Cup. In the beginning, of course, there were no leagues. The early years of the FA Cup became a battleground for a power struggle that would come to define non-league football for its first century, between the amateurs, who considered football a pastime that would be degraded by the introduction of commerce into it, and the professionals, who saw an opportunity when people started turning up to watch these matches, and who wanted to turn the game into a business. A hat-trick of FA Cup final appearances by Southern League clubs at the start of the 20th century seemed to indicate that the professional game wouldn't be the sole preserve of the Midlands and the North of England forever. Southampton became the first Southern League club to reach the FA Cup final in 1900, when 69,000 people saw them lose 4-0 to Bury at Crystal Palace. Two years later, they were back, with a goal two minutes from time salvaging a draw against Sheffield United before they lost the replay. Between these two appearances, though, the Southern League did win the FA Cup. 
Almost 111,000 people turned out to see Tottenham Hotspur and Sheffield United play out a 2-2 draw. The first football match to be recorded by Pathé News. The replay, played a week later at Burnham Park in Bolton, saw Spurs win by three goals to one. Within a decade, they'd be a football league club. As the new century wore on though, the Southern League successes became thinner on the ground. Millwall Athletic lost in the semi-finals in 1903 and Fulham did the same in 1907. But the 1906-07 season was different in the FA Cup. 13 of the 21st Division clubs were knocked out of the competition by lower division sides, a figure that remains a record for one season, with two of the other semi-finalists also coming from the Southern League. One team that did briefly threaten to bring the FA Cup back to the Southern League was Swindon Town. League runners-up three times and champions twice between 1909 and 1914, Swindon also reached the FA Cup quarter-finals in 1911 and reached the semi-finals in both 1910 and 1912. In 1912 they beat two first division clubs, Notts County and Everton, who would end the season as runners-up in the first division before losing to Barnsley in the semi-finals, and even this only came after two replays. In the 1914 edition of the competition, Queen's Park Rangers reached the quarter-finals as well, before losing to Liverpool. The entire face of the professional game in England changed in 1920 and 21 when the third divisions North and South were introduced, and the FA Cup had its own big change coming, with the construction of a new stadium in northwest London that would host the final from there on. The 1922-23 FA Cup brought about another record which stands to this day. St Albans City were a club that had rebuilt successfully when football returned after the First World War, winning the Athenian League in both 1920 and 1921. So when they were drawn to play Dulwich Hamlet, who won the Isthmian League in 1920, it was one of the matches of the round. Not least because an FA Amateur Cup third round match between the two sides at Dulwich the previous year had resulted in thousands of supporters rushing the gates after the ground reached capacity. The two sides drew one all in the fourth qualifying round match at Clarence Park St Albans, but in the replay at Champion Hill, St Albans forward Wilfred Minter, not to be confused with Billy Minter, who played for Tottenham Hotspur at the same time, scored all seven goals for the Saints and was chaired from the pitch at the end of the match, all of which sounds very positive until you remember that Dulwich had scored eight goals and won the match 8-7. Minter's record for scoring the most goals in an FA Cup match and being on the losing side remains in place to this day. Surprise results were common in the early stages of the competition throughout the 1920s and 1930s, but without television coverage and radio coverage being considerably more rudimentary than it is today, 
they didn't receive the attention that they would in later years. Corinthian, the amateurs who'd taken the game around the world in the years before the First World War, got to the third round in 1930 and took Millwall to two replays before losing. While in the last season before war broke out again, Chelmsford City of the Southern League reached the fourth round of the competition before losing to Birmingham City. They'd beaten 2nd Division Southampton 4-1 in the third round. At the end of the Second World War, the FA Cup returned but the Football League didn't. Not for a year at least. It was considered too difficult to arrange a league programme at such short notice and the FA Cup stepped into the breach, with the FA agreeing for all ties to be played over two legs up to the quarter-finals in order to guarantee some sort of revenue from a competitive match for clubs over the course of the season. Playing the competition over two legs made it more difficult for non-league clubs to put one over on their Football League opponents. But that's not to say that it didn't happen. Newport Isle of Wight knocked Leighton Orient out over two legs, losing the first leg 2-1 but winning the second leg 2-0 to claim an aggregate win. Lovell's Athletic, a work side from Newport in South Wales, were the only non-league club still standing by the third round having beaten Bournemouth and Boscombe Athletic and Bath City in the first two. They lost 12-3 on aggregate in the third round against Wolverhampton Wanderers. Perhaps the year zero for the notion of FA Cup giant killing, however, came in 1949. Yeovil Town had beaten non-league opposition, Romford and Weymouth, in the first two rounds of that year's competition. And in the third round, they beat Berry who were near the top of the second division at the time. Player manager Alex Stock, however, knew a thing or two about what these days would be described as mind games. In the build-up to their next match against Sunderland, Stock attempted to give his players a psychological edge over the opposition by exaggerating the steepness of the sloping pitch at Hooish, and then refused to allow Sunderland's trainers to train on the pitch. Sunderland were right for picking too the only club at that time to have never been relegated from the first division, they'd also only narrowly avoided relegation at the end of the previous season, having finished in 20th place in the first division table. They may not have been the team of all talents of the first decade of the century, but they had earned themselves another nickname, the Bank of England Club, which was foisted upon them on account of their lavish spending on new players. In February 1948, They'd splashed out £20,050 on Len Shackleton from Newcastle United, a record British transfer fee at the time. Stock gave Yeovil the lead after 28 minutes, but a second-half equaliser pushed the match into extra time. With a fog having descended that might well have caused the abandonment of match in more modern era, Eric Bryant scored the winning goal shortly before the half-time interval. When the crowd incorrectly assumed that the referee had blown the whistle for full time and invaded the pitch with several minutes to play, it might have been abandoned again. It was a famous win for Yeovil, 
All the more so for the fact that the match was featured in newsreels at a time when eight times as many people went to the cinema as do now. The crowded provincial football ground, with a pitch like a ploughed field and inclement weather conditions, would become quite the non-league trope in the years to follow. To the tune of the Glover's Anthem, 11 men of Yeovil roll into battle. Cinderella's of soccer, their giant-killing cup exploits have made them famous overnight. In the Wellington, where the host is one of the team, it's all skittles and no beer for Yeovil's southern leaguers. The serious part of their training comes on their sparsely lit ground every evening after work. There, in semi-darkness, they plan the tactics which the whole town hopes will take them through the next round. Though they're not newcomers to the game, they aren't the glamour boys of soccer. But their achievements have brought their town and their team right into the headlines. Famous for its gloves, Yeovil, with its 19,000 inhabitants, is bubbling over with cup fever. Team forecasts and experts' opinions are the study of every supporter, and who isn't in this town. Theirs is a team mostly made up of part-timers, of men like Arthur Hickman, a groundsman by day, a footballer on Saturdays, and teacher Bob Hamilton, master goal-getter, and Les Blizzard, centre-half, an electrician employed by chairman Albert Smith. And there's Ray Wright, an aircraft fitter, whose hobby is gardening when he isn't on the field. They are the little men whose victory over the biggins has brought nationwide admiration. From the Women's Supporter Club, the team get a complete new kit. Everyone wants to help. The town's grand old man, Stanley Jackson, fairy godfather to Yeovil Soccer, officially receives the gift on the team's behalf. Player manager Alex Stock gives his side an even chance of beating Sunderland and sums up... But no matter what the result, we at Yeovil shall have a rattling good day on. Four years later, in 1953, there almost came one of the greatest shocks of all. Isthmian League Walthamstow Avenue had already beaten Watford and Stockport County to get to the fourth round of the FA Cup, and a Jimmy Lewis goal 15 minutes from time earned them a replay from a trip to Old Trafford to play Manchester United. With a media scrum descending, the replay was switched from Avenue's Green Pond Road to Highbury the following Thursday afternoon, where a crowd of more than 49,000 people turned out to watch the match. United won by five goals to two, but Walthamstow gave them an almighty scare over the course of the two matches. Perhaps surprisingly though, the dominant amateur club of the era didn't have an especially stellar record in the FA Cup. Between 1950 and 1956, Bishop Auckland won the Northern League six times in seven years and the FA Amateur Cup three times in a row, but they only had one FA Cup run of consequence. In 1955, they beat Crystal Palace and Ipswich Town before losing to York City in the fourth round of the competition. FA Cup headlines weren't solely reserved for the amateurs, of course, even though the antics of the likes of Walthamstow Avenue fed into the romanticism of amateur football that was going on at the time. One club that built a formidable reputation throughout the mid-1950s to mid-1960s was Bedford Town of the Southern League. In 1956, they beat Watford in the second round to set up a trip to Highbury to play Arsenal in the third round. Arsenal led 2-0 with 15 minutes to play, but goals from Ronnie Steele and Bernard Moore drew Bedford level, 
and they had a shot cleared from the Arsenal goal line in the last minute, which would, had it gone in, have caused the greatest FA Cup surprise result of all time. In the replay at the Eyrie, Harry Yates gave Bedford the lead almost straight from the kickoff at the start of the second half. They held on to the lead until there were just four minutes to play, when Vic Groves headed Arsenal level. Arsenal took the lead and clung on to win 2-1 after extra time. And even then there was time for Bedford to have a goal disallowed for offside. Bedford returned with a vengeance in the mid-1960s. In 1963 they beat Newcastle 2-1 at St James's Park in the third round before losing to Carlisle United. And two years later they beat Exeter City and Brighton and Hove Albion on the way to losing at home to Everton in the fourth round. And finally, in 1967, they beat Oxford United in the second round, before losing to Peterborough United. By the early 1970s, The idea of the giant killing non-league team was just about reaching its peak and Newcastle United were to be the full guys for one of the great FA Cup stories of all time at the hands of Southern League Hereford United. The tie wasn't a one-day affair either. It was a saga that took in five postponements, two matches and three weeks to complete. The first game at St James's Park was called off twice before finally being played on the 24th of January, a Monday evening, ending in a 2-2 draw. The replay, covered by the BBC for match of the day under the watchful eye of rookie commentator John Motson, was finally played on the day of the fourth round at Edgar Street, and a Malcolm McDonald header with seven minutes to play seemed finally to have ended Newcastle's agony. Few would have guessed at what was to follow. Ronnie Radford's 35-yard equalising goal for Hereford remains arguably the most famous goal in the entire history of the tournament, whilst a winning goal from substitute Ricky George sparked a second pitch invasion of the afternoon, celebrations which in themselves would become FA Cup folklore. Hereford United, meanwhile, were voted into the Football League at the end of the 1971-72 season. Now Green, Busby, three in the penalty area, McDonald coming in, that's it, Radford, now Tudor's gone down for Newcastle, Radford again, oh what a goal, what a goal, Radford the scorer, Ronnie Radford, and the crowd, The crowd are invading the pitch, and now it will take some time to clear the field. McDonald on his left foot. Well, Hereford survived there all right. There was a situation developing two against one. This is Tyler. Billy Meadows. Away by Moncur. Radford. Tyler. George. 
Ricky George has done it! What a moment for Hereford! Three years later, in 1975, both the third and fourth rounds of the FA Cup featured non-league clubs pitting their wits against top-flight opposition. There was nothing spectacular about Southern League Wimbledon's progress to the third round of the competition that year, but their trip to Turf Moor to play Burnley ended in a 1-0 win and a fourth round trip to the defending Football League champions Leeds United. They were joined at this stage by Leatherhead of the Isthmian League, who'd already beaten Colchester United and Brighton and Hove Albion to get this far, and were away to Leicester City. There was drama in both matches. At Elland Road, Wimbledon goalkeeper Dickie Guy saved a late Peter Lorimer penalty to force a goalless draw, whilst at Filbert Street, Leatherhead, whose forward Chris Kelly had earned himself the nickname of the Leatherhead Lip with his confident predictions of what he'd do to the Leicester defence, raced into an early two-goal lead before being pegged back and beaten by three goals to two. Wimbledon were beaten 1-0 by Leeds United in their replay, a match switched to Selhurst Park on the following Monday evening. Neither of these two non-league sides had beaten their first division opposition, but both had come extremely close. Two years later, they drew each other in the second round of the FA Cup at Leatherhead's Fetram Grove, with Wimbledon winning comfortably. They managed a goalless draw at home to Middlesbrough and lost the replay in the next round. The after-effects of these two clubs' FA Cup runs couldn't have been much more different, though. Wimbledon became the last club to be voted into the Football League in 1978. Leatherhead, with no obvious route to apply to join the league, would fade from view and slip back into relative obscurity. It is something of a curiosity that the team with the most fearsome reputation of all non-league sides throughout the mid to late 1970s now seem to be half forgotten. But Altrincham's record in the competition throughout this period was amongst the finest that any non-league club has ever had. In 1974 they beat Hartlepool United and then took Blackburn Rovers to a replay before losing. The following year they were back in the third round again holding Everton to a draw before losing a replay which was moved to Old Trafford. In 1979, 
they held Spurs to a draw at White Hart Lane before losing another replay. And in 1981, they had a trip to Anfield to play Liverpool in the third round, but lost 4-1. Ironically, Altrincham's best FA Cup result came a little after their peak. In the third round of the competition in 1986, they travelled to St Andrews to play Birmingham City and they beat the First Division team, which featured a young David Seaman in goal, by two goals to one. Perhaps the most famous cup run of the late 1970s, however, came in Northumberland. Blythe Spartans of the Northern League made the fourth round of the competition in 1978 without raising too many eyebrows, with Chesterfield being their only Football League scalp on the way. Even in the third round, when fans might have been dreaming of a match against Newcastle United or Sunderland, they drew a home match against Isthmian League Enfield, which they won by a goal to nil. Their fourth round match at Stoke City fell victim to the weather twice before it could be played. When it was though, Spartans won 3-2, though hopes of a fifth round match against Newcastle were dashed when Wrexham beat them in their fourth round replay after the winners had been drawn to play Blythe. With two minutes to play at the racecourse ground though, Blythe led, thanks to an early goal from Terry Johnson. Then, however, came an episode that would find a place in infamy in Blythe. Although the ball had clearly gone behind via a Wrexham player's foot, referee Alf Gray gave a corner. To give himself more room, midfielder Les Cartwright moved the corner flag so that it stood at an angle. As the Blythe goalkeeper collected the corner kick comfortably though, Gray noticed the flag had fallen completely over. He ordered a retake and the flag was balanced into its frozen hole for Cartwright to swing the ball over again. Once more, the defence repelled the threat, only for referee to spot that the flag had fallen over again. Another retake. This time, the arc of the cross left the Blythe defence flat-footed and Dixie McNeil managed to force the ball over the line at the far post. The replay was switched to St James's Park, but Blythe's chance had come and gone. Wrexham won 2-1 and went through to the quarter-finals. Blythe wouldn't get so far again, though they did reach the third round in both 2009 and 2015. Bobby Shinton. All along has looked like well, the most likely man to save Wrexham. Corner, says the referee. Waterson doesn't agree, and it did well look as though it came off the shins of... Uh, Referee putting the flag in its right place. It's curling in, Shinton is underneath it, the goalkeeper got a hand to it. Another corner. Again, they're on their feet in the dugout. That corner won't count, but it's beautifully taken anyway. Cartwright with the kick. Roberts hounding in on it, and it's gone in! And the crowd going absolutely mad. McNeil has kept them alive and has maintained his own record as well. As Roberts went in, the ball bounced off McNeil and over the line in the 89th minute. Well, Blythe scored in the 89th minute to win 
and Stoke. And they've been denied here in the 89th minute. By the middle of the 1980s, though, not all attention that came with an FA Cup run was welcome. In 1985, Burton Albion were drawn at home to Leicester City and the match was switched to Filbert Street. There was crowd violence throughout the afternoon and Derby's 6-1 win was annulled because the Burton goalkeeper Paul Evans was struck by a missile thrown from behind the goal. The match was eventually replayed behind closed doors at Coventry City's Highfield Road, with Leicester winning 1-0. There was a happier story from the other side of the Midlands in the same season though. Telford United beat Lincoln City, Preston North End, Bradford City and Darlington before losing 3-0 to that season's eventual runaway league champions Everton in the fifth round. The introduction of automatic promotion and relegation between Division 4 of the Football League and the Football Conference in 1987 started to blur the lines between league and non-league football though. League clubs started to find it difficult to get back into the league following relegation and several long-standing non-league clubs found themselves promoted into the Football League. In 1989 though, there was a somewhat more old-fashioned story on FA Cup third round day. Coventry City of the First Division had caused something of a surprise by beating Tottenham Hotspur to win their first FA Cup in 1987. And this time around, they had to travel to the sedge of South London to play GM Vauxhall Conference side Sutton United in the third round of the competition. Sutton, who had been promoted into the conference just two years earlier, had an FA Cup pedigree of their own. A year earlier they'd beaten Aldershot and Peterborough United before losing narrowly to Middlesbrough after a replay. They were a media dream. A small ground with an unusual name, Gander Green Lane, unusual colours, yellow and brown, and a manager, Barry Williams, who was a former teacher, known for putting poetry into his managerial notes. Goals from Tony Raines and Matthew Hanlon won the game for Sutton in front of a crowd of 8,000, and the pipe-wielding manager was invited to that evening's match of the day to talk about his experience. This time, though, the magic, as this sort of result was increasingly being described, couldn't last. Sutton lost 8-0 to Norwich City in the fourth round. We're in the last five minutes of the first half here at Gander Green Lane. Pratt and Golly in the six-yard box waiting. And Golly and Reigns and a goal! And they have done it! And Tony Reigns, the left-back, is the hero of Sutton for the time being at least. Now this morning on a bleak park pitch just behind the ground, they were working on this corner it's paid off, Sutton are in front. This is Bennett. And now Sedgley. And Phillips has made a run from left back and there's danger here for Sutton United. And Phillips has put Coventry City level. So seven minutes after half-time, Sedgley made the running here for Coventry, saw what was on, Place that ball perfectly in the space and David Phillips scores. 
Mickey Stevens takes the corners on both sides, so we could look for another good delivery from him, maybe, but probably now the outswinger because it's on the right. Here's Dawson. expecting a direct cross, Dawson floats the ball in and Hanlon is the player who finishes it off from close in. Well, you've got to admire their spirit quite apart from anything else. In by Reigns. Oh, what a chance again here! Oh, Hanlon again, could have been 3-1. Well, this lad's 22, he works as a master bricklayer. How much more time the referee will allow after the 90 minutes is up. Robin Jones at right back concedes the corner. This could be Coventry's last chance. Peak off the line again, this time I think by Rogers. Smith wide again, sliced it. And there it is. Sutton United of the GM Vauxhall Conference have put out first division Coventry City. Winners of the FA Cup themselves less than two years ago. Barry Williams' finest moment. And what a moment to enjoy for the fans of this Surrey side. Sutton's win against Coventry, though, would be the last time that a non-league club would beat a top division club for almost a quarter of a century. And by the time it happened again, the FA Cup would have a very different profile for the supporters of most Premier League clubs. The supporters of big clubs had largely stopped caring about the FA Cup, choosing to prioritise Premier League survival over Cup success, just as their clubs did. Such was the nature of the now rapidly opening gulf in resources between the biggest and the rest, that crowds for matches started to plummet, even with clubs reducing the cost of tickets for them. The anachronistic nature of all of this reflected the increasing financial orientation of the game in general as the 20th century drew to a close. Keeping the financial wheels greased was now the first priority of everyone, and the FA Cup was no exception to this. Just as promotion to the Premier League started to be judged by how much money those who got promoted would make in television money, Cup runs started to be valued in how much they were worth rather than what they meant to those concerned. The power of the bank balance replaced emotional pull. The introduction of automatic promotion and relegation into the Football League, combined with the creation of the Premier League, created a perfect storm of circumstances for wage inflation to become rife. Conference clubs started to turn fully professional in order to stay competitive and numerous football league clubs started to find the conference considerably easier to fall into than to clamber out of in an upward direction. By 2013, the casual observer might have been forgiven for not even knowing when a giant killing was even taking place. Luton Town had dropped through the divisions throughout the first decade of the 21st century, felled by a combination of financial mismanagement and subsequent savage point deductions from the Football League. They travelled to Carrow Road to play Norwich City in 2013 as a conference club, with Norwich in the Premier League. They won by a goal to nil, 
but the scale of the win didn't receive the attention it deserved because Luton still felt like a football league club to many people. And occasionally, the publicity and fallout from an FA Cup run could leave a sour taste in the mouth. In 2003, Farnborough Town made it to the fourth round of the FA Cup. Following a 5-1 win against Harrogate in the first round, they defeated Southport 3-0 in the second round and 3rd Division Darlington in the third. They were then drawn at home to Arsenal in the fourth round, although the game was switched to Highbury. Following a 5-1 defeat, owner-manager Graham Wesley left the club, also taking seven players with him as he moved to Stevenage Borough. The FA banned clubs from switching venues within weeks of this happening, but in 2007, Farnborough Town were expelled from the football conference and folded. It didn't always have to be this way, though. In 2008, Haven't and Waterlooville of the Conference South beat York City, Knox County and Swansea City before heading to Anfield to play Liverpool in the fourth round, where they took the lead twice before losing by five goals to two. But then, in 2017, came Lincoln City. Lincoln had become the first football league club to be automatically relegated on the last day of the 1986-87 season, but were promoted back at the first attempt. A second relegation, however, came in 2011, and this time they found it somewhat more difficult to get back into the Football League. Lincoln's 2016-17 FA Cup run began in modest circumstances, with wins against Geisley and Altrincham. Then, though, they spread their wings, beating Oldham Athletic, Ipswich Town and Brighton and Hove Albion to set up a fifth-round trip to Turf Moor to play Premier League strugglers Burnley where a last-minute header from Sean Raggett sent them through to the quarter-finals, the first non-league club to get to this stage of the competition since Queen's Park Rangers 103 years earlier. Their run ended at the Emirates Stadium with a 5-0 defeat against Arsenal in the next round, but Lincoln City had made history and a lot of money from their run. And those concerned about the Cups proving a distraction had to eat some humble pie as well. At the end of the season, Lincoln won the National League title, returning to the Football League after an absence of six years. Reed continues to tussle, this time we've got Ashley Barnes in the centre here. So late in the day as the ball comes back in and Raggett's on the end of it! And they're claiming it's gone over the line and the referee's given the goal! Unbelievable! In the 89th minute of the match! This is why we love the FA Cup. It delivers yet again. And watch Racket there, number 25, kept his eye on the ball all the way. And it's definitely in. It's over the line. And from Burnley's point of view, it might be a case of over and out. What drama at Turf Moor. And there isn't much time for Burnley to do anything about it. Here's the definitive angle. It's definitely in by some distance. And Raggett will never score a bigger goal than that, I'm sure. The FA Cup has suffered in recent years. Chipped away at by a football association that only seems to consider it a vessel to make money. And by fans and clubs who now consider it to be somehow beneath them. Even if many of them haven't actually won it in decades, if ever before. 
Nowadays, for non-league clubs, it resembles a perverse form of lottery, in which one club per season might make a seven-figure sum with a favourable wind and a couple of decent results. Like everything else in the game nowadays, any romance associated with it was long ago commoditized, only of value for so long as it's making money for someone. And its debasement is now coming specifically to grow the gap between the biggest and the rest still further. Replays, a valuable source of potential revenue for smaller clubs, are slowly being phased out, and COVID-19 may well do for them once and for all. In a broader sense, for the first time in a century and a half, it is conceivable to imagine a not-too-distant future in which the competition doesn't contain top six Premier League clubs, or perhaps doesn't even exist at all. There may be words of protest in the media and from fans when that particular axe finally falls, but the truth is that pretty much everybody has been complicit in the decline of the FA Cup. The FA, messing around with kick-off times, the clubs, fielding understrength teams, and the fans, not bothering to turn out for third or fourth round matches whilst debasing the tournament on social media. It's an uncomfortable truth, but a truth nevertheless. And this slow fade towards irrelevance is a tragedy in its own way, yet another victory for a society that knows the price of everything but the value of nothing, which embraces grotesque inequality and sneers at those unlucky enough to be amongst its have-nots. Perhaps all of this would be a price almost worth paying if it made supporters happy, but there's little sign that it actually does. We live in a world in which sneering cynicism and outright rage are just default emotional standpoints, and there's little room for sentiment, romance, or just enjoying a moment in the sun anymore. Some people call this progress. And you are listening to this 200% podcast. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Be good to each other and robots.